This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 174, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Bjorn Goss, founder of Stocard, one of Europe's leading digital wallet fintechs. Do you have a digital wallet? I, being Neanderthal, don't. But on the other hand, neither did I ever have a real-world wallet, so I failed at first base, well short of second base. I guess third base will be when governments forcibly microchip us for our protection from COVID-25 when it comes along. And I don't even want to think about what the fourth base will be. Anyway, back to second base, digital wallets. Bjorn and friends have clearly got something up their sleeve, as it's not every app that has over 60 million users and gets 4.7 stars, for example, on Google Play. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Bjorn. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be here and educate you a little on the future of wallets. Well, hopefully educate me a lot. And there may be sort of, you know, one or two of the, the, the millions of listeners around the world who are as Neanderthal as I and haven't heard of it. Or I didn't know, actually, we'll come on to the, the utilisation rate, what percentage one would guess of, a, of an audience doesn't have it. And in terms of kicking things off, we were sort of chit-chatting about recordings and all that. And generally, we, we look for something more interesting than fintech, which, of course, is a tremendous challenge to find anything more interesting than fintech to kick it off. So let's start with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, when uh, preparing the show a little or uh, during our talk, I mentioned that I uh, sort of grew up in music studios and was doing music a lot, but I wouldn't call that a career similar to my dream of becoming a professional football player when you're 10 or 11 or 12 years old. I think in both ca- both cases, uh, it was not the lack of vision, but rather the lack of uh, talent. <laughs> so. I see. So when you say you grew up in music studios, do you mean your mum was in ABBA or something like that? Or do, do you mean that at a certain stage you graduated? Nothing like that. No, no, no. Just uh, very casual, having a band and uncle running a music studio. And so just some touch points here and there. So what instrument did you play? What kind of music did your band play? I played uh, the guitar, lead guitar. And uh, we were just doing what you do as a teenager, right? Just uh, some pop rock music covering some songs if your your set list was not long enough. Yes, what you do as a teenager is kind of um, quite similar over the, the decades, I suspect, but I guess the type of music depends upon when you were a teenager. And that pop rock, maybe that sort of come back in again or something. So when which sort of decade was this, roughly speaking? So that was uh, early 2000s, just a little before I then got more serious, let's say, and went through all the usual stuff that uh, people do, university and getting an education and, uh, yeah, ending up working for McKinsey a little before founding Stokard. I see. And the footballer thing then, just to sort of tidy up the loose end there. Amateur football? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was also very similar to what, what millions of uh, <laughs> millions of people do, right? Just um, football, yeah. I mean, you're obviously clearly massively enjoying yourself far more than if you'd been a professional footballer or a rock god, having groupies throwing themselves at you all around the world, which would have been a sort of very boring occupation, I'm sure. But what led you from sort of being a teenager and uh, having that kind of fun to uh, being a grown-up and having the even greater fun that is uh, the world of fintech? Yes, I think uh, 
what amazed me all the time also while still being a teenager is is building stuff so the first little venture was actually selling t-shirts which uh, ended never being really launched in full scale and um, then i got into com computer science um, i mean i studied business informatics and then management but just the fact that you were able to write a little code and then ship it to the whole world that was something that fascinated me and i think this yeah just this drive to build something and get it out there that's probably what eventually drove me to the journey of an entrepreneur but uh, at the same time also i mean i studied in in london at london school of economics as well where i got my masters from and you know that's just a usual thing all students at these universities do you then get in this habit of okay after university i want to work at an uh, investment bank or consultancy but uh, luckily i had a co-founder co who also had a very entrepreneurial drive um, and so it was quite easy to get out of out of that system uh, quite quickly and then we founded stocat together excellent and um, just hearing you reminds me bridget and i uh, are doing just to sort of fill in wednesday evenings with something different a course on the um, native north american uh, medicine wheel, which is more levels of meaning than I would have possibly ever imagined. I've got a pile of notes on at the moment. Anyway, just taking one small element of that, it's really about integrating different parts of the, the psyche and life's journey and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And um, the north-south axis has got many, many meanings on the medicine wheel. But one of them is the, the, the route from childhood to adulthood. But the important thing, and going back to your sort of teenage stuff and your experiments, the important thing is we all have got a tendency to sort of grow up. And, you know, if you do sort of things like, I don't know, create businesses, employ millions of people, raise trillions of dollars, get married, have six kids, have motor cars, have cars everywhere and all that, then life can actually get sort of quite serious and, and lots of responsibilities and all that. Um, but the important point from a sort of psychological development part is... If one has lost touch of one's inner child, one's inner younger self, is to actually reconnect with it or, or, or stay connected because there's lots of things that kids do. They, they have fun, they do experiments, they don't really worry about whether this single they played today was brilliant or, or, or not and all that. So yes, integrating, integrating the child and, and the adult I think is, is really important and I think it's perhaps one of the things that entrepreneurs do very well because you can't really be an entrepreneur a creative individual without sort of having some some contact with the sort of the 13 year old you who didn't worry too much and just tried stuff yeah i mean resonates very well with me um it's uh, i think in public we talk a lot about how great things are when you're an entrepreneur but there are of course also more challenging times and yeah I, on the one hand just looking at it with a with some sort of healthy distance is the one thing i think and uh the other thing as well is if you if you think about i don't know things not working out or failing here and there think similar to what you do as a child as long as you don't stop you haven't failed right you this sort of experiment as you call it just didn't work out uh, and you continue with uh, doing something else or similar which doesn't necessarily mean or well, not talking necessarily about a new company or anything but just also within the company if you try to launch this product and it didn't work so well maybe you learned something and you try another product so i think as long as you don't stop you don't fail and um looking at that with a healthy distance i think um that's a good good thing to approach it yes and of course there are, there are grown-up values that one needs to have as well so 
you know, if you're a kid and you're kicking your football around the garden, you kick it through the window, you know, you've really done something bad and, and you're apologising and all that. But as a founder, if you're doing all these experiments and one day you kick the ball through the window, you go, oh shit, we've lost everybody's money today. That's really not very good. And that's the kind of experiment that tends to be a bit sort of semi, semi-fatal, actually. So there needs to be this balance between sort of responsibility and, you know, experimentation within parameters whilst retaining the, the experimentation. Anyway, so that's um, all well and good. Now, as I say, being Neanderthal and never having had a first base wallet, I don't have a second base wallet. And uh, of course, I'm completely familiar with them, know exactly what they are. But maybe there's some listeners who, who don't and you can, you can tell them what wallets are. And maybe we just start with a little bit of historical background. I mean, um, when did somebody come up with the phrase digital wallet or when was the first one? Was it in sort of, you know, the 90s, the noughties, the tens or sort of the week before last? How old is this concept? How long have I been missing what uh, digital wallets are? I have no idea how old this wording is, but uh, I think in, in general, probably not older than the smartphone. I mean, there are a lot of confusing concepts or namings people are using. So some people refer to the PayPal account as a wallet, which in my view it isn't. So the way I think about the wallet is, and so you don't have a physical wallet, but hopefully or probably most listeners do have a physical wallet. And the way how we think about the mobile wallet is that just the physical wallet that you have in your pocket with your bank cards, credit cards, ID, driver's license, but then also all, um, I don't know, loyalty cards, coupons, and so on, that this will just move move to the mobile phone. And that's probably it in a nutshell. So by this definition, it can't be older than the smartphone. Right, that's interesting. And also, as you say, the, the different definitions of wallets and that. So not talking about the phone. If I'm on my browser, for example, I bought some digital music this morning. There we go. Uh, I bought some digital music this morning and there's the usual sort of boring, you know, give every house you've ever lived at and, you know, blah, 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 and other stuff, which is irrelevant to digital downloading anyway. The usual fulfillment process and uh, a Brave, I've now moved off sort of Google. Brave offers kindly to sort of fill in all the information and all that kind of stuff. But I would assume, uh, you know, apropos what you say about PayPal, that you wouldn't consider, just to say Chrome, because Brave is built on Chrome, you wouldn't consider Chrome's autofill function as any kind of wallet, not even a de minimis wallet. It's just just an autofill, presumably, to you. No, but there is some overlap there in, in terms of what the functionality is, um, because in the online world, the checkout page is digital. In the offline world, you stand at a physical point of sale. So in the offline world, it's uh, the definition is way easier to make. But I think in the in the online world as well, if you if you have an account where you lock in, let it be a PayPal account, let it be your your Google account or an Audible option, I would not consider that a wallet. I think the wallet is really the central hub where you have everything stored, starting from uh, bank and credit cards and anything that uh, you find in your physical wallet. Simply, I see. So with comparison with the real world old school process where you go to a coffee shop and you get your wallet out if you've got one or if you're an old hippie like me you stick your hand into your jean pocket and and pull out a bunch of cards and a bunch of money and random stuff like that then presumably is it true to say that a digital wallet is primarily used or only used at the point of purchasing something or if i had downloaded stow card onto my phone would i be busy using it for other purposes at a non-purchasing point of time. Yeah, I think that's that's where things are starting to become very interesting. So if you look at the history again, people just needed a needed a space to store their money, their cards and so on and carry that around and use it use it as you said 
when buying something. But as soon as these things move to the mobile phone, of course, I mean, the phones are called smartphones, right? So they can be way smarter than your physical wallet. So the functionality can be easily exp uh, extended. So if you consider the mobile wallet being the place where you have all your payment cards, your money connected, but then also your loyalty cards and so on. Why shouldn't you have your coupons on your on your mobile phone in your mobile wallet, right? In the physical world, you'd have to receive the paper leaflet, then you have to cut out all these different coupons that you're interested in for toothbrush, toothpaste, toilet paper, and so on, and then put it into your physical wallet. If your wallet is digital, why not just have them directly in your digital wallet and activate them with one click? So that's also probably where the confusion comes a bit from with uh, things like online shopping um, and the is it a wallet if I have a PayPal account? Because the wallet that moved to the mobile phone just got so much smarter and now has so much more functionality than the wallet you actually had in your pocket when you still had a physical wallet. Yes, so that all makes a lot of sense with me, other than that you said smartphones are smart. I mean, some of the times they are, and uh, it's not a good time to raise that point with me because last week, and I hate it when I have an intuitive feeling and that I ignore it. I keep doing this all the time, and I, I'm trying to stop myself doing it. Anyway, my Android tablet said, wireless update available. And I had an intuitive feeling, no, no, don't touch that, leave it for a while, you know, get them to sort it out. So I updated my tablet and it uh, promptly bricked itself. Uh, so my my tablet is now um, is now dead. And actually looking up this thing, it's an Android problem. I don't know, Android 10 or something. Uh, who cares? I guess techies care, but I, I didn't particularly care. I just wanted to keep working like my car does without sort of uh, suddenly stopping working. It's It's got into a, um, a boot screen loop, uh, which actually has been known in all sorts of phones as well, actually. So there is a challenge around that, I would have thought, coming back to relying on wallets. I mean, on the London Underground, and I'm sure many places in around the world, you can tap your phone on the sort of the underground. That's when people used to go into London and used to use the underground and more than about 1% of people and it would register it. But in the, if, if by the other side, your phone runs out of battery, you can't tap it on the other side and then London Underground charge you, I don't know, a million bucks or something because they sort of think you've been riding around the whole thing, the whole system the whole day. So there is a challenge around excessive or 100% reliance on technology as they're not because whilst technology is a great enabler and can do brilliant things that you can't do without it, like everything in this world, it isn't 100.0000% reliable. So let's say I go, I leave all my cards at home, I'll go on holiday, another, another sort of thing that old folks like me remember. But we used to go on holiday before the New World Order took over. And I go around the world with just my phone. And then what happened in Thailand a few years ago when I had to get a podcast out, the phone slipped out the safe and smashed to pieces on, on a wooden floor, which was very unfortunate. So we then spent two thirds of a day going around Bangkok trying to get a phone fixed because unsurprisingly, Google recently had asked me to sort of change my password to something even more unmemorable, which I'd done and, and actually not taken a note of that to go abroad. So I was completely, completely stuffed. So just on this point, I mean, what do you advise your users or what do you personally do? Do you, do you take the view that um, you don't have Android and Apple's a bit better, therefore it's 99.999% and, and the risk that I'm talking about is such a tail end risk you don't worry about it? Or do you always have a sort of a credit card in your pocket or a physical wallet just in case the whole thing blows up, runs out of battery, etc, etc? I don't carry a wallet on a daily basis, of course. And on the other hand, I also have not burned all my cash uh, and all my plastic cards. So I still have them here in the drawer or when we, I don't know, when I just drive 
a bit further so over the weekend i i have something in my car take some something with me but i think the problem you're addressing it's a pretty general one so i don't know if i think about now navigating my environment i think nowadays there are a lot of people who just use google maps to get around uh, to find near places nearby or to figure out how to get from a to b and if your smartphone runs out of battery or or breaks or whatever um, then it's also a bit harder for you to get from a to b um, but i think it's at least for me and my environment and, and the people I know, it's a thing that is so unlikely that I would not optimize for it. And uh, I think in general, we're also dependent on our smartphones um, that in 99.9% of the cases, people just have an eye on that they are charged or that they still carry them around. But yeah, if you want to be 100% sure, then take a paper map so you still find your way around and then put 100 bucks in your back pocket and um, you're also safe on that. Yes, and I don't know how it relates to to wallets, but I have a sort of a a pro tip for um, listeners, which is that last autumn I had some quite amusing, no, it wasn't amusing at all, actually. It was very tedious times with Revolut. My pro tip is I have Revolut and Monzo on my phone. Revolut stopped being able to transfer money Spent the usual sort of 15,000 hours on chat, waiting for chat, etc., etc., the, the so-called helpline. And I was advised to log out. And again, I had an intuitive feeling. I thought, don't do this, Mike. Don't do it. Anyway, they insisted. So I said, before I log out, I insist that, you know, I can definitely get, oh, no, there's no problem. You'll definitely get back in. Cut long story short, I couldn't get back in. Why couldn't I get back in? Because getting back in relied on one factor, which was your bank card details. Now my bank card details, I got a recently I got a new bank card and I hadn't entered that into Revolut because I didn't know it didn't want, didn't want to. Anyway, cut a long story short, I had a couple of weeks, an absolute nightmare. And because of lockdown, I hadn't been spending money. I had a few thousand pounds there and I couldn't get back. And I found that with Revolut that um, there's no telephone number you can call and this kind of thing. So I just started to sort of haranguing them and embarrassing them on Twitter and all sorts of um, nightmares like that. So yes, just when it comes back to banks, and I know you're not a bank, but anyway, when it comes back to banks and, and stuff like that, not putting all your eggs in one basket is a good idea. Now, in terms of getting onto to wallets, rather than the fact that every time I touch a piece of technology in the last few months, it, it breaks. I see you seem to have a talent for that, yeah. <laughs> Either I've got a talent for it, or as I'm roughly the only person in the tech world who doesn't use iPhones, um, maybe I should just give in and go, go to Apple because they pay more attention to their releases, or, or rather they have a less diverse ecosystem of a thousand different phones and you know trying to create one operating system that works on them all with all their various quirks, which is a bit of a challenge. Although on the Revolut, actually, I did see some press thing a while ago saying that they were going to do a, an, an online web interface for their thing, which is a, a really good fallback, you know, because let's say your phone breaks or something. They said, well, download it on the tablet. So I downloaded it on the tablet, which was working at the time. And uh, it, it says, no, 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 you're not registered for this tablet. Or we've just sent a code to your phone. And If you then need the details of your bank card, you're still screwed with the, the, with the online interface as well, right? <laughs> with the web interface. <laughs> totally, totally. And, you know, I, I use my old fashioned MasterCard very, very little. And because six weeks later, I get a, um, I get a, a sort of paper bill and I look at this thing, I've got no idea what it was. Whereas, and, and this happened to one of, uh, one of my kids through Monzo, actually, somebody obviously got their details um, and bought some, I don't know, pizza in Amsterdam with it. But my daughter got an immediate notification saying, bing, you know, actually, and this transaction was blocked. So well done, Monzo, for that one. So there's a, there's a positive reasons to use all this digital stuff these days, which is it's much better fraud protection than six weeks later go, I can't remember buying a pizza in Amsterdam. I can't even remember being in Amsterdam. But come back to the digital wallet. I mean, one of the things that you say, which I can see would be a good use case, is all these vouchers and, and all these kind of things and store cards and all that being amalgamated with all the payment mechanisms and, and this kind of thing. And I can see what that, that's 
one reason that I don't need a, an old wallet and why I haven't investigated the digital wallets. Because whenever I'm standing behind somebody in a shop, and this is a sexist comment, but it's an empirical observation. Uh, women get their, at the person, they've got a thousand cards. Here's my Boots card, here's my Waitrose card, or da 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 Whereas a sort of uh, old guy like me, I go to Waitrose and say, have you got a store card every time? I wish they didn't. I said, no, I don't. And I've probably lost a million bucks as, as, as a result. So in terms of these kind of things, uh, I do remember when Tom Mon from Monzo was on, talking Monzo on the show a few Christmases ago, and he, he was talking about, oh yes, we'll make sure that your payment automatically incorporates all the store cards and your vouchers and all, all this kind of stuff, which is a wonderful aspiration, like you know, a lot of his plans for Monzo, but execution proved trickier. So how do you actually go about amalgamating all these store cards, and, and am I the only person in the world who doesn't use them, or is there sort of a, you know, a demographic that, for the sake of argument, 66% of women use them in Germany and 33% of men, or something like that? Because I can see if I had a dozen store cards and a dozen credit cards, I'd absolutely want to amalgamate them all. And something like your app that sorted all that out would be brilliant. No, so I think on StoCard, it's the case that of our 60 million users, it's roughly 50-50. There are a few more women, but um, there's not, no severe trend or anything. In the beginning, it was actually interesting that we had more men when we were starting, uh, probably because they are more like tech early adopters. But now it's a um, bit more women, but but sort of 50-50. And yeah, so I think uh, the fact that we have uh, 60 million users uh, who make around or close to 2 billion transactions every year just speaks for itself. And I think, as you said, so a Stokart user on average has 13 loyalty cards. Wow. So what you can do with the Stokart app is you can just go to any store and get all your benefits. And when we founded the company, we actually thought, okay, the wallet will move to the digital phone. Banking will look way different. It'll uh, look way more like what we're seeing in Asia with the likes like Alipay and WeChat Pay. But now actually, if we want to build a product that people love, we have to build it around something that people get excited about, right? And I mean, it's just not paying. So payments is not not the thing people want to do. They probably would even prefer shopping without having to pay. They would then <laughs> even have more money. So um, what we said, okay, we said we need to build a build a wallet that goes beyond payment and focuses on the whole shopping experience and uh, shopping journey. And so that's what we did. So we've built this app where we have now, I think more than 6,000 6, retailers listed on the app. You can add all the loyalty cards to the Stokart app. You can go to any store and you collect all the benefits without having to carry around any plastic card. You can also use the app to pay, but more importantly, what we did is we built a whole ecosystem around shopping on top of that. So we've built a retail platform where we have hundreds of retailers integrated, meaning that they provide a lot of value added services through the Stokart app. So you see all the coupons you have available and you just activates the one you're interested in. The next time you go shopping, you just show the Stokart app. You collect all your loyalty points. At the same time, all the coupons get applied in the background automatically and you pay with the Stokart app. And on the one hand, that's a beautiful experience, digital experience of shopping, which often is a clunky experience. On the other hand, and that addresses a point that you've mentioned, when you use Stokart for your shop shopping, depending on the vertical, you just save between two to 5% on average with every transaction. And for many, many people, that's just a very strong argument to use Stokart for anything shopping over any other card or any other app. And that's all powered by the retail platform that we've built where we have all these hundreds of retailers integrated into. Gosh, so is that really the case that if I wasn't so useless 
and I collected every loyalty card going that I would save whatever plus or minus 3% on average on my entire expenditure. You can get way more if you look at uh, verticals like furniture or so. They easily give you 10, 20, 30% off if you're using the right app or if you're looking at the right offers. So, and then of Gosh. course, a Tesco can't give you 30% off because their margin is not 30%. Depends on the vertical, but that's how, yeah, that's how it works. Ah, so that's something I hadn't noticed. I mean, one reason I haven't noticed in the last 12 months, of course, is that uh, I don't think sort of Germany is having a bunch of fun either. But um, in the UK, it's roughly speaking illegal to buy furniture and illegal to sort of hug your kids and illegal to do anything <laughs> at the moment uh, other than go to Waitrose. So that's the only place I go. So let's ask a simple question. So of all your billions of transactions, what percentage are online and what percentage are offline in terms of the use case? It's mostly offline, but of course it's shifting a little to online now. But the app in general is, is completely multi-channel. You, so you consume all the benefits and all the offers and coupon. And so you just see them in the Stokart app. You decide what you want to buy. You activate the coupons, for example, or you decide to go for a certain offer. And then you can just redeem it inside a store, inside a physical store. Or you can also always go to the homepage of the retailer from the Stokart app. And there the, the benefits are also automatically applied. So just on that, so I'm a little bit confused. So for example, back in the day when I used to go into London before doing podcasts and that, I go and have a coffee at Monmouth. Now, Monmouth coffee uh, doesn't cost that much, so I could get my phone if I was set up with Google Pay, which of course I'm not either. Uh, but anyway, I, can, I could tap like the sort of the cool, trendy young people in front of me, tap with my phone on, on the thing, and it would pay as a sort of tap and pay thing. And I, and I think that the new old order over here is putting it up to £100 per tap because they don't want anybody to have cash and all this kind of thing. So that's okay. But when I go to Waitrose and, and check out, they've normally got some, I don't know, champagne at discount or port discount or something just not with that discount code so it's on the thing it always comes to hundreds of pounds now i can't tap my phone for for hundreds of pounds so presumably i can't use it in, in at the checkout in that circumstance then is that right so i'm not sure if i got the question but in general you can just tap the phone for for any transaction oh really for any value yeah so the reason you haven't got my question is that and I'm, I'm an idiot and i don't understand paying for things yet despite having done it for quite a while so if i have my, let's say, Revolut card, and I go to a coffee shop and it's 20 quid for my bun and my coffee. I tap, I just physically tap the yep. card on it and stand there. And, and as happened uh, two weeks ago, I'm 10 yards away from the shop and the, the shop comes running after saying, oh, it didn't work after all. Can you come and tap again? If I go to Waitrose and spend £300 on a, on a mega shop and I try and tap my Revolut card, it won't work because £300 is over the limit. So I then stick it into a little hole and then try and remember one of my 5,000 pins that I've got and then I type that and it happens. If I didn't have my Revolut card and all that, but I had my mobile phone with, with your app on it, and this is a, sounds very silly, but my phone wouldn't actually fit into the hole where I stick my Revolut card. So I, I think what you... Are failing to understand. <laughs> I know, what you probably should do is you should add your Revolut card to Stokart because of course there's the contactless limit. But that is applied to plastic cards due to fraud and risk and stuff like that, right? And just got increased in the UK, I think, from 50 to 100. So for anything, as you described it, any transaction over 100, you have to enter your PIN if you use your plastic card. But when paying with Stokart, what you do is we use biometric authentication before you make a transaction. So either face ID or fingerprint. And uh, then we can make sure that it's really you. And then you tap the phone and then you've paid. And um, that's completely independent of, of the amount you pay then because you've authenticated before. So my tip, my pro tip, add your Revolut card to Stokart and then use Stokart for smooth and seamless payments. <laughs> yes, and get Waitrose and then I'll, I'll save loads of money. Well, okay, so you, you've, you've analyzed it very well. That was a piece of information I didn't have, 
which is that there isn't a limit for tapping with a, should we say, a mobile phone with, with verification lines and all that kind of stuff. And one reason I don't know is because sort of in, in the backwaters out, out here, I don't think I've ever seen anybody tap with a phone, <laughs> phone at Waitrose because it's sort of, uh, it's slightly sort of before the Stone Age and Neanderthals are still wandering around where I live. Good. Okay, so I think that's been sort of quite helpful in terms of just taking it from an idiot's perspective and, and understanding how it actually works mechanically, the advantages of doing it, the fact you do billions of transactions, the fact that actually money is there to be saved, or vice versa, folks like me are just giving money away because we're not taking advantage of all this. So the way you explain it, and obviously you explained it very well, otherwise 60 million people wouldn't have done it, and obviously there are, there are benefits. The way you explain it, I was about to say everybody should have one, but maybe sort of everybody younger than I should have one, and certainly my parents wouldn't because they couldn't get their heads around sort of smartphones and all that kind of stuff. My mum still struggles sending a, sending a text on her new phone. It doesn't really sort of work very well. But so why shouldn't everybody use it? Why shouldn't you have whatever it is, 300 million people using it in, in Europe? Yeah, I think there, there are some limitations in the sense of that maybe some people are not tech savvy enough. But however, I think the way how we've built Stocard or the way how convenient and easy mobile wallets work uh, in, in general, everybody who's using WhatsApp should also be able to use Stocard. Um, it's actually one of the feedbacks we're often getting is, um, oh, that's just from looking at it. That looks so easy. I could easily rebuild what you've done. And I always think, wow, <laughs> that's the greatest thing to hear that we've been able to put all the technology in the background and make it look so easy and really functional. And so I think everybody who's using WhatsApp in theory can also use Stocard and then in general for mobile wallets. There are just a lot of benefits uh, starting from security, as you mentioned before, but also now during the pandemic we're in um, having to touch less surfaces. And so it's just also way more secure from that perspective. But then also from the additional services you get, from the additional money you can you can save without having to cut all these paper coupons and carry around the environmental impact in terms of saving all the plastic, the paper, etc. I think there are tons of reasons why everybody or almost everybody should use it. But of course, there are some limitations. And I think with 60 million people, we're covering, so we're present in, in the UK, but also uh, other European countries like Belgium, Netherlands, France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and so on. And depending on how big the country is, um, we have up to 20% of the population using Stokart for the daily shopping. And yes, there are still 80% that we haven't reached yet or haven't convinced yet, but um, I think looking at the at the recent growth we've seen, it's quite tremendous and we're very happy with that. Probably in terms of users, we're Europe's biggest fintech. On the other hand, as you said, there's also still some room to get some more of the 80% of the population we're not having on our platform yet. But I think uh, we've set a quite good foundation um, getting them as well. And when did you launch? Because going back to how hard can it be, the answer is always far harder than people imagine from the outside, and particularly if people like you've done the job well. It looks simple, but you know, behind the scenes is, is much more complicated. When did, you, when did you launch or when did your app launch? We started the company in 2012, end of 2012, and then worked some time on getting to product market fit, like really shaping the product in a way that people understand easily, get benefits from it quite quickly to set the foundation for growth. And uh, then one or two years after, after the foundation of the company, the actual growth trajectory and growth journey began.
Brilliant. And just on this coupons thing, I mean, just going back to the sort of the whole ecosystem around it, I'm glad to hear you use an old school phrase like cut out a paper coupon. And I'm not quite that old school because actually I didn't see anything on paper. I mean, I don't actually see any pieces of paper that I could actually cut. I mean, I buy loads of books from Amazon, never actually read them. I just pile them up in the corner. But, um, <laughs> I don't know whether this is different on the continent or something, whether sort of vouchers are given out or whether people still get, I don't know, newspapers delivered with coupons to cut out. I and mean, where do people get these coupons? Yeah, so uh, on the one hand, they are sent by retailers to you. If you look on YouTube, there are actually real tutorials how to combine certain coupons to make the most out of it and save the most money. So uh, <laughs> I think that's a that's a science in its uh, own rights. But uh, then what you probably know, what's uh, very popular in the UK is just, for example, leaflets with weekly offers. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I had to touch. Yeah, so, and uh, I mean, there are just billions of pages printed every year on that and sent around and distributed. And it's quite generic offers. So that's also a benefit of a mobile wallet that in the mobile wallet, you have it personalized, right? So um, you don't necessarily need, to, if you're not interested in it, you're, you don't need to see women's shoes. If you're just interested in men's shoes, you'll just see men's shoes in your mobile wallet. But I think, um, yeah, so we're, we're talking about the retail part a lot. I think what's uh, also super interesting is if you look at China um, and, and how banking looks there, how it transfer, transformed the whole banking journey or the whole, whole banking industry and how it changed the roles of banks. Yes, I'm thinking I should have got my partner Bridget to do this one because she's much better shopping than I am. I, mean, I think one of my sort of uh, core problems is I hate shopping. I've always hated shopping. So I don't understand, understand all these things even less than normal. So in terms of the future, we'll come on to Stokard in a second uh, and you can tell us about your geographic expansions because clearly what you're doing is brilliant and very few people come on the show and, and say they've got more customers than anyone else in Europe. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal statistic. But where do you see this going? I mean, going back to creativity and childhood ideas and trying new things and all that kind of stuff. You're clearly doing what you do brilliantly well. There are clearly huge chunks of the market that are more sophisticated than I about shopping and how to spend money and save money and all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge market out there. You've solved it very well in the last what, eight, nine years. Do you have any visions for the future about where you'd like to have taken this technology to in terms of product depth? not just geographically in, in say three or five years time. I mean, in no, three or five years time, you might want to cover the whole world for the sake of argument, but what more can be done in the, in the wallet? What's your vision for where wallets might go? Very good question. And um, so I think the integral part of our mobile wallet or probably the mobile wallet will still be that it's primarily not so much about banking, but for the user, it's mainly about shopping because as I said before, people don't want to pay, they want to shop. So one thing is to further build our retail platform and help our retail partners, which are usually the top 100 retailers in each country, to further help them making shopping a beautiful digital experience, which is also something our customers love. But then on the other hand, if you think about that, if your mobile wallet moves from your pocket to your mobile phone, and you have a mobile wallet on the mobile phone that you use on a daily basis for all your shopping, it will become the first point of contact for anything around money, right? So I think in the future, you will also use it to send your friends money or to receive money from your friends. I think then even one step further is there are services that are very close to shopping. And I think that's probably more the near term future that are currently covered by, by the banking industry. But if you think about, if you want to, for example, buy a nice TV, you go to an electronics store, you think, oh, that's a beautiful TV but it's 2000 euros, I cannot afford it. 
I think in the future, it'll be way more likely that you just open the mobile wallet, the app that you're using on a daily basis, that you're used to, that you trust, and just click one button, you take the TV, and you pay it in installments. So for example, a buy now, a buy now pay later option integrated into your mobile wallet, instead of standing there looking at the TV and thinking about, oh, now I go to my mobile banking app that I open maybe once a month to check if my salary came in, and then try to figure out how to take out a consumer loan there. And that's just one example. And I think there are a lot of financial services that will move to the mobile, uh, to the mobile wallet because it's just the first point of contact for anything around money. And in the beginning, it'll be more low involvement cases like buy now, pay later that are closer to shopping. But then if you think about all the data that a mobile wallet has in the long term, it will also be the case that, for example, if you're thinking about getting a mortgage, your mobile wallet might not be the first thing you think of when getting a mortgage. However, since you're opening it on a daily basis, it's not a problem for a wallet to also offer you, hey, you can also get a mortgage here. And since the wallet has way richer data than the banks, for example, sitting in the background, if you're getting a mortgage for 1% from your bank, the mobile wallet will probably, if you're a good customer, be able to offer it to you for 0.6%. And then it's, again, quite an easy choice. So I think what we'll see happening within the next decade is that banks are losing more and more customer access, that more and more services are moving to the mobile wallet because it's the first point of contact for anything around money. And yeah, then um, it's just a question how, how the future of retail banking in Europe will, will look like. I truly believe that it will look way more similar to what we're seeing in China with likes like Alipay and WeChat Pay. And we also already now across Europe see the first banks accept, uh, accepting this future and trying to think about how to position themselves and how to become more relevant in customers' everyday lives. So by launching some services like couponing platforms, by trying to offer a cashback and trying to convince people to use their card and, and stuff like that. And that holds for, for many, many services. If you look at the US, for example, with the likes like Robinhood or so, who are brokers, it's an investment product, right? They also launched a card. Why do they launch a card? Because they figure we need to be present with the consumer on a daily basis to make sure we have the customer touch points and secure customer access. And I think there's just for financial services, no app or nothing better positioned than a mobile wallet to have this customer access and also offer financial service, services, which will reshape how banking looks like in Europe in the future. Excellent. Well, that was a very comprehensive, very clear and, and a very credible vision you have there, Bjorn. And I can see that, you know, just starting from the sort of simple payments bit that sort of fills into my browser, my Revolut details, in a sense, wallets have been nibbling it from that direction into the direction of shopping as a whole into the direction of FFS and will keep eroding banking from the side. And in extremis, banks could end up just being the wholesale thing behind the scenes and that the sort of the retail coverage is not there, no longer their sort of retail banking, but actually a lot of these. So it's a very interesting time of digital transformation. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. Hope you have less challenge with uh, shopping than I, I do and you, you save your money as well. And if not, you need to rush out and download Stoke Card. Also, I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. 
Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co, the enlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. And if I extracted a digit a, digit, a little bit more fairly soon, I'll put up a new slide share on uh, advisory boards, the use thereof. And then uh, you're running out of time, folks. So my first quarter offer of lighting candles in the dark rather than railing against the darkness, clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman slash LFP gives you 30 minutes free mentoring on getting from where you are to entrepreneurial governance, so understanding FS and FinTech more, um, or business mentoring. So Bjorn, we've touched on Stokel once or twice, uh, not least of which because you're so amazingly successful, it'd be very hard to discuss the, the topic without actually discussing how you guys are doing it. And I clearly don't understand shopping, which is my core problem here rather than <laughs> sort of the FS thing. But in terms of where uh, you're going tomorrow, you set out the future for where um, mobile wallets could go and might well go, particularly on the sort of geographical front and on the, on the business front, uh, where are you looking to expand and uh, what do you need more of uh, in terms of resources, sex, drugs, rock and roll or whatever to be even more successful in the future than you are today, just in case any listeners out there have exactly what you want? Yeah, so I think we touched upon the vision quite nicely now and um, we're currently active mostly in Western Europe. So we have offices in Germany, in France, and so in Paris, in Rotterdam, in Milan, also in Sydney, Australia, Toronto, Canada, and also just recently opened an office in London. And we're looking to expand further into Eastern Europe. And at some point, but that's more, let's say, a strategic long shot also to the US. Excellent. And in terms of what you need more of, do you need more devs? Do you need partners in Bolivia? Do you, do you need more capital? Do you need more? I mean, obviously, you always need more users. <laughs> yeah. So uh, adding adding on users through through podcasts on that scale is uh, is getting harder and harder. <laughs> If you, if you have some organic growth based on 60 million users. But then, yeah, as you said, so we're always looking for amazing talent. There's no specific role, but there's, I think, currently 30, 40 open positions on, on our website. In general, it's everything from development over sales, uh, business development, HR, etc. So all the functions, because, yeah, we're just looking to further expand the business. And... Um, we're not raising money. We're seeing a lot of inbound interest, but uh, the business model, as it's very similar to the business model, business of Google, Facebook, and so on, it's a very profitable one. So, but I mean, we're always open to talk, but we're not raising money currently. And yeah, I think uh, in addition to that, what's also quite interesting is that we're having a platform with a lot of users and we're offering more and more financial services, but we're not planning to become a bank ourselves. So this means that we're looking for partners in the background who'd be willing to offer the service. So if, for example, there's a bank who's saying, okay, I'd be interested in doing the underwriting or, or giving out loans for 60 million people, that could be a great partner for us. Um, and it's the same for other products from loans to investments to, to anything you can think of, yeah. And just the avoidance of doubt or for clarity for the listeners, when you say that your business model is similar to Facebook's and Google's, off the top of my head, those businesses make loads of money out of people's data. So if I sign up with Stowcard and you can see that I buy tons of port at Waitrose, do I suddenly do you suddenly sell my details to port um, shippers in the UK or in, in Portugal or something like that? Or is my data my data? Without going into the whole sort of EU GDPR data ownership mumble mumble thing, just, just in terms of a simple answer. No, that's a very good question and that's a very clear no. So if you start Stokard, you can even see that you can start using the app without even creating an account. So that means we don't even care 
if you're, I don't know, if you're Mike or if you're Caroline or how old you are. So we don't collect any, any data. It's not a data business because what you actually do is when you sign up for a loyalty card, the retailer gives you money back. But what you give the retailer instead is you give, give them some data so that they understand I don't know what you bought, how often you're coming back and so on. If you're male, female or so, and they can target you with the right offers. So it's all between the retailer and you. And we're just a platform in the middle. And presumably as a platform in the middle, you take, I didn't know, a percentage of the retails. Exactly. So the way how, yeah. So the way how we make money is that, as I said, similar to, to a Google or to a Facebook or so, is if businesses, if retailers are using our service, they pay us an advertising fee. Excellent. Well, that's been genuinely very interesting, not just from a fintech, FS and a digital wallet perspective, which I hope has been interesting to those listeners who don't have digital wallets and clearly should be checking you out, whatever decision they end up making for themselves. But also it's been, it's sort of, I, mean, I actually feel like, I used to feel like as a sort of a kid being sort of dragged around by my mother to go and buy trousers at shops, which has still sort of traumatised <laughs> me decades later. So I've had a useful lesson in, in, in shopping here and I think there are offers in Waitrose, but I just didn't like take lo- taking loads of cards. But I can quite see that. I mean, I'd always take the phone to the shop, of course, and the phone's always charged up and, you know, it only breaks when you download stuff and all that kind of thing. So I can actually see that there's a very good um, use case for even uh, Luddites like myself checking it out. So that's a great sell. And I hope you made uh, many more sells, even if I can't suggest that um, by being here, you'll get a great percentage increase in 60 million listeners, then at least this knowledge has been spread around and the more it gets spread around the more that everybody can as individuals and as consumers benefit from what fintech is doing in terms of empowering the individual and making things simpler better faster cheaper about which none of us can complain so thank you very much that bjorn it's very clearly laid out and i wish you every success in the future thanks a lot mike highly appreciate it was a lot of fun thanks for listening If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city The tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? 
Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.